Fusion, the International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this special Higgs Discovery Edition, with me in the studio is Victoria Bond. Well, as recurrent listeners of Diffusion are probably aware, we are very excited about CERN and the Higgs boson discovery here at Diffusion. We've been giving you quarterly updates from the time when the tunnel was just getting excavated beneath Switzerland and France to the time when there were unfortunate malfunctions in product manufacturing. And now, finally, we've reached the most exciting stage of all, which is the results stage. The Higgs boson discovery was announced last week, as you are probably well aware, whether or not you are a scientist or interested in science. This has made all sorts of news. Here's a clip of Sergio Bertolucci and Rolf Heuer, workers at CERN, explaining the discovery. We have observed a new new boson with a mass of 125.3 plus or minus 0.6 GV at 4.9 standard deviations. Thank you. Should I say that I'm pleased? Congratulations. <laughs> I think it's obvious. This is still mine, right? This is still yours, yes. As a layman, I would now say, I think we have it. You agree? Yeah. So you may be able to tell by the thundering applause of the usually quite stoic physicists that they're quite excited about this result. But what exactly is the Higgs boson? I'm not sure I really understand. I'm... I'm not even a physicist, I'm a biologist, I'm just interested in physics. But we have the great John Ellis, who will explain in very simple terms why the Higgs boson discovery is exciting. Here he is. Since 1964, we've had this idea uh, proposed by Angler, Braut and Higgs that empty space is like a medium. And as particles travel through this medium, some of them interact with it, some of them don't interact with it. The ones that do interact with this medium, they acquire masses, and the ones that pass through it without interacting, those are massless particles. Let me give you an analogy. Uh, Imagine an infinite field of snow extending throughout all of space, flat, featureless, going in all directions. Uh, maybe the middle of Siberia. Now imagine that you're trying to cross this field of snow. So maybe you're a skier and you skim across the top. That's like a particle that does not interact with the Higgs field. It doesn't sink into the snow. It goes very fast. That's like a particle with no mass traveling at the speed of light. But maybe you've only got snowshoes. In that case, you sink into the Higgs snow field You get less speed than the skier, less than the speed of light. That's like a particle with mass because you are connecting 
interacting with that Higgs snow field. And then finally, if you've just got uh, boots on, then you sink deeply into the snow. You go very, very slowly, and that's like a particle with a big mass. So, think of it, this Higgs field as being like this universal field of snow. Now, where does the Higgs boson come in? Well, we all know what snow is made of, right? It's made out of snowflakes. In the same way, this universal Higgs snowfield is made up out of little quanta. Those quanta are like snowflakes. That's what we call the Higgs boson. The Higgs boson has this job of giving masses to all the other elementary particles. If you look at the basic equations of the standard model, as written on my T-shirt, uh, they're very symmetric. The, the way in which all the different particles appear is the same. Uh, at least on the top two lines, there's nothing to distinguish particles which have different masses, for example. But this symmetry has to be broken. Uh, electrons are lighter than muons. The top quark is much heavier than the quarks that make up everyday nuclei. So the top two lines, the symmetric lines, cannot be all there is. There has to be something to discriminate, distinguish between the different types of particle. And that's the job of the Higgs boson. That's the job of the two bottom lines. Depending on how those different types of quark, or the electron and the muon, depending on how they connect to that Higgs field, that Higgs boson, we believe they get different masses. The symmetry between these particles is broken. So I think that was a, a clarifying analogy for, for simple non-physicists like myself. But Ian Wolfe, who is a physicist, can go a little bit more in, in depth with some of my um, continuing questions after the video, hopefully. So, so my first question, Ian, would be, why do we even need a Higgs boson? But what's, what's the whole concept behind this, this theory, which strikes me as rather new? Okay, what's going on is the standard model of quantum physics, the standard model of physics that we use all the time, that's stood us in great stead and which every experiment so far has confirmed, is incomplete because it doesn't include gravity. So gravity is a real phenomenon, but it's not in the standard model. So there's all these extensions of the standard model that people are suggesting to try and include gravity and make it more complete. And Higgs was one of the physicists who suggested back in 1964 a suggestion that there's a Higgs field that would actually give things mass, that would explain gravity in some way, and that, of course, in the standard model, all fields, like the electromagnetic field, for example, are mediated by quanta, by, by particle equivalents. So for the electromagnetic field, there's light, there's photons. And for the Higgs field, there's the Higgs boson. So the Higgs, we can't really see the field, just like we can't really see an electromagnetic field, but we can see the light. So we can see the bosons, the Higgs bosons. So what we're trying to do is understand mass and gravity by finding which theory points in the right direction. And so this, this Higgs field would be everywhere? The Higgs field would be absolutely everywhere. Even within the vacuum of space? Yes. Especially within the vacuum of space? Just, it's everywhere. Just everywhere. And wherever there's things that have mass, 
there would be some activity interacting. All matter would be interacting with the field and somehow, in ways we don't fully understand yet, the way they interact with the field would give them mass and would explain what we see as gravity. So the Higgs boson would give certain objects more mass than others? That seems to be... I mean, we're getting straining the limits of my understanding here. I don't know, along with millions of people around the world, I sat and watched the live stream on Wednesday and... A lot of it I was barely able to follow because it's very advanced stuff. But basically, yes. What we're trying to find out is why gravity works, why things have different masses. Because if the electron didn't have much more mass than the proton, then atoms wouldn't be the way they are. Without atoms, there's no matter. Without matter, we're not here. Okay. And what what is it about the particle that was discovered in December that makes the scientists so certain that it is a Higgs boson? Well, it's very, very hard because what they're looking for is a very tiny, tiny signal. They're looking for the smallest possible disturbance of the Higgs field to get the the quanta, because a quantum is, of course, the smallest amount. And so they're going for a very quiet little signal. And The other thing is they can't actually see a Higgs boson directly because they decay very, very quickly. So all you see when you look is the decay products, which are other particles. And to make it even more hard, lots of other different processes can produce the same decay products. So you've got to be sure that what you're looking at comes from a Higgs boson decaying and not something else. And the way they do it is by doing it at certain very, very high energies, which you can only get in the Large Hadron Collider. And all which are energies that are predicted by the theory of just how massive this thing would be itself, how big it would be. And the other thing is there's a pattern in the way you detect these little beats, these little tiny blips. And if you're looking for sort of like the beat of the music, in a way, in amongst all these millions of different... Because they're doing it millions of times per hour, every hour, every day. So there's an enormous amount of data. With statistics, you can sift through all those huge amounts of observations and find the ones that aren't caused by other things that to within five sigma, which is more than one in a million chances that you're right, that it's only caused by Higgs boson and not anything else. And if that's true, that points at the Higgs field. And when we know more about the Higgs field, then hopefully we can understand how gravity works. And this this might be a completely silly question, but does the theory of the Higgs boson, is, is that the same thing as a unifying theory? It's a really good question because that's one of those things that people have been looking at for ages. My best understanding, and I'd rather talk to a particle physicist to be sure, and we'll we'll try and find one to interview on diffusion, is that it's not quite that it's an extension of the standard model, but it doesn't say that the Higgs field and the electromagnetic field and the weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force are all the same. So I think at this stage they're still separate, but that doesn't mean that somebody might not find a way to unify it in the, in the future. It's certainly a great step forward in our understanding of physics and the universe as it is. It's an amazing step forward because what they did was so very exact and so difficult. It's just amazing that it was possible. And Ian, why do you think... I, I'm just stunned by the reaction of people around the world to the discovery of this Higgs boson. It perhaps has something to do with the fact that the media has been calling it the God particle. 
um, which is a, a funny nickname. We can touch on that later. But why do you think it's captured the imagination of so many scientists and non-scientists alike? Well, it's big science. Ironically, it's the smallest possible things we're trying to look at, but it's big science. You've got the most expensive machine and the biggest machine ever built in the history of the world. You've got thousands of scientists working on it, and it's the big question. I mean, this is the nature of the universe. This is why are we here? Why is there stuff and instead of nothing? Do you think there'll be ramifications in our everyday life, or is this purely science for science's sake? I think there's always consequences for everyday life eventually. It's a matter of how much our understanding moves along and what we can do with it. I mean, there's there's two levels of interactions with our normal life. One is understanding the Higgs field. And uh, somebody on Twitter had, step one, find Higgs boson. Step two, question marks. Step three, anti-gravity. And you know, if we understood gravity, if we could unify it with the electroweak force, then perhaps you could, you know, have anti-gravity. Um, currently it looks like that's completely impossible, but who knows? So if we understand it, then all sorts of other things become possible. But also we understand it by building the LHC, we learn about magnets, we learn about just building this particular machine that feeds into all these different technologies that lead into everyday life. Like, for example, the crunching of really big numbers. I mean, the amount of data coming out of this every day is ridiculously huge. And so there's... There's a sort of hyper-internet that they use to transfer the data. I've forgotten what it's called. So they've got ridiculously fast broadband compared to what we're used to, and they've got very fast computers crunching huge amounts of data, and all of that gets out into the civilian, non-scientific world, and we'll be able to do amazing things with it. You know, it's funny, this is a complete segue, but I've just finished rereading Carl Sagan's novel, Contact. And I I think it's quite analogous in a lot of ways. It's this idea of the world coming together to build an extremely complicated machine. And it sort of binds humanity for for a higher purpose, which is is purely intellectual. In Carl Sagan's novel, as well as as with the LHC at this point, it's it's almost a purely intellectual pursuit. But I think it's um, some of humanity's at, at its best. It's very inspiring to me. I think so. And we were all able to share it through the internet. And of course, one of the inventors of the World Wide Web, Tim Berners-Lee, was at the conference because he's a nuclear physicist. Because after all, he was working at CERN when he invented the web as a way for particle physicists to exchange data. The fact that you use it for everything else is just a byproduct of the physics. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and podcast over the internet on diffusionradio.com. And now, some other science news. And in what seems like a physician's Christmas coming early, there's been some very exciting developments in astronomical physics, in which a team at Munich University witnessed for the first time a dark matter tendril. For the first time, a key component of the mostly hidden but large-scale structure of the universe has been observed by a team of astronomers at the University of Munich Observatory in Germany. The team, led by 
Georg Dietrich, was able to directly observe a dark matter tendril, gigantic structures that, it is theorized, extend throughout the universe. These vast, low-density structures intersect where galaxy clusters tend to occur. The discovery, which was nearly overlooked due to the anticipation and speculation around the possible discovery of the Higgs boson, marks the first time that scientists have observationally verified this very important theoretical prediction. These massive large-scale cosmic structures may account for the missing mass predicted to exist by Caltech astronomer Fitz Zwicky in 1933. Now due to their low density, the filaments are very difficult to observe but the team was able to directly observe one such massive filament due to a bit of luck, its perpendicular orientation to Earth. This orientation makes it slightly more dense in appearance from our cosmic perspective. So instead of seeing it, seeing it longitudinally, which would make it very skinny indeed, we saw it the other way around, from the distal end to the proximal end. And, due to an effect known as gravitational lensing, the structure deforms the light from objects behind it, by observing this lensing over a span of 40,000 background galaxies, the astronomers were able to calculate the mass of the filament to be between 6.5 times 10 to the 13 and 9.8 times 10 to the 13 times the mass of the Sun. The huge dark matter tendril is 18 megaparsecs long and it connects two galaxy clusters, Abel 222 and Abel 223, which are located 2.7 billion light years away. The discovery will help astronomers and astrophysicists determine how visible matter interacts with dark matter to form galaxies. Kendall J. Eske has been very busy. He's author of Gustatory Disgust Influences Moral Judgment from February 2011 of the Social, Psychological and Personality Science Journal. He's connected taste and moral judgments. He had people consuming a sweet beverage, a bitter beverage, or water, and then got them to rate a variety of moral transgressions. The results show that taste perception significantly affected their moral judgments, so that physical disgust, induced with a bitter taste, brought on feelings of moral disgust. Further, this effect was more pronounced in participants with politically conservative views than in participants with politically liberal views. And for our Australian listeners, we mean small L liberals. Taken together, these differential findings suggest that embodied gustatory experiences, or the way you taste things, may affect your moral processing more than previously thought. Then he went on in February this year, 2012, in the journal Emotion, to look at aesthetic taste. Stirring images, fear, not happiness or arousal, makes art more sublime. So, the evidence from neuroscience suggests that emotions play a critical role in art perception. But just to what extent are specific emotional states affecting your aesthetic experiences? Or is just general physiological arousal sufficient? So, participants were assigned to one of five conditions, sitting normally, engaging on 15 or 30 jumping jacks, or viewing a happy or scary video before rating abstract works of art. Only the fear condition resulted in significantly more positive judgments about the art. These findings provide the first evidence that fear uniquely inspires positively valenced aesthetic judgments. And in May 15th, 
in the Journal of Social, Psychological and Personality Science, he published Wholesome Foods and Wholesome Morals. Organic foods reduce pro-social behaviour and harshen moral judgments. So building on that sweet tastes induce sweet behaviour and disgusting tastes make you very judgmental, what about other types of foods? Comfort foods, organic foods and so on? Now, organic foods are often marketed with moral terms, honesty, purity life, smart balance. But what extent does exposure to organic foods influence your moral judgments or behaviour? She found that after viewing a few organic foods, comfort foods or control foods, now we're talking about looking at food, not even tasting it, participants who are exposed to organic foods volunteered significantly less time to help a needy stranger, and they judged moral transgressions harsher than those who viewed non-organic foods. So exposure to organic foods may lead people to affirm their moral identities, which attenuates their desire to be altruistic. So if you want people to be sweet, feed them sweets. And if you want them to appreciate your art, jump out and say boo. That's crazy. Maybe that's why we're all so mean. Doom's BFG, the big F gun, makes way for Japan's STFU. A team of Japanese researchers has just designed a weapon that physically stops its victims from speaking within a hundred feet. The gun is called the Speech Jammer and was developed at the National Institute of Advanced Industrial Science and Technology in Japan. It's a speaker and a microphone, both designed to accurately target a small cone of direct sound. As it listens to its victim, it quickly projects the words back at them with a small delay of 200 milliseconds, creating delayed auditory feedback, which creates an annoying echo that makes it impossible to speak without getting confused by the delay. You might have tried this in a university psychology department on an open day. The aim was to use it in quiet spaces like libraries and movie theatres. The other aim was to disarm louder and stronger voices from dominating conversations. So the paper says we have to establish and obey rules for proper turn-taking when speaking, but some people tend to lengthen their turns or deliberately interrupt other people when it's their turn in order to establish their presence rather than achieve more fruitful discussions. Furthermore, some people tend to jeer at speakers to invalidate their speech. So, basically, they invented it so people would be forced into polite conversational procedures at gunpoint. Governments around the world would be loudly thanking the Japanese for this new weapon against protesters if it wasn't already pointed right at them. A new synthetic protein can activate your innate immune system to fight off a new infection. A new study published in July 6th in the Public Library of Science journal PLOS One finds that EP67, a powerful synthetic protein, is able to activate the innate immune system within just two hours of being administered. Previously, it was only used as an additive to make vaccines work better. Mice treated with EP67 within a 24-hour window of non-lethal infection were significantly protected from influenza-induced weight loss. Furthermore, EP67 delivered 24 hours after lethal infection completely blocked influenza-induced mortality. Completely, that's 0% versus 100% survival. Your innate immune system brings up generic responses such as inflammation to fight off infections your body hasn't seen before. So the synthetic protein could be taken when you've been exposed to anything to start your body fighting an infection early, before the virus or fungus or bacteria starts causing its own symptoms. 
The study found increased levels of cytokines, chemokines, neutrophils, NK cells and dendritic cells in the lungs of mice exposed to influenza. Of course, you will start to feel sick as soon as your innate immune system kicks in, but that's a small price to pay. So should people be triggering their their innate immune system the minute they think they've been exposed to something? Well, I think in this case it would be important to remember the, the caveats of using such a chemical. The reason we use it in vaccines is because it is extremely effective at triggering an immune response. That immune response is two-tiered, so there's the innate immune response, which is nonspecific, as you mentioned. It's your macrophages, it's your cytokines, it's your chemokines, etc. And then that ties into eventually developing a more adapted immune response, which are the antibodies that attack specific antigens. That's why we use it in vaccines, because it it triggers the innate, which eventually leads to the adaptive. What you need to remember is uh, chemokines and cytokines and natural killer cells, they're destructive, (laughs) as the name might suggest. So if you're constantly triggering your immune system, first of all, you're, you're producing, you're making your bone marrow work very hard all the time, which can have deleterious effects uh, in terms of perhaps an increased cancer rate in the future, although don't quote me on that, but it it could be a side effect when you make cells replicate a lot. That's often how cancers can occur because over a long-term mutations can develop as these cells replicate. Another thing that you have to keep in mind is these chemokines and neutrophils destroy human tissue. So you will feel sick, you will be sick, and if it's for just a fear of having been exposed to an illness, it's probably not worth it. That's my opinion. (laughs) And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. If you'd like to contribute to the show, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. If you're in Sydney, you can join the team in the studio of 2SCR. If you're outside Sydney, you could email us at recordedstory. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Tell us your thoughts, feelings, and especially your stories. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Victoria Bond. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Diffusion! <laughs> 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 <laughs>